When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abuel Samad. So we're going to talk about the Volvo XC40 T5, the Audi Q5, and the Kia Stinger G2, GT2. That's what we're driving. Um, and we're also going to talk about GM deciding to pull the plug on book, uh, Faraday Futures Rocky Week. <laughs> or Faraday's lack of future. Well, yeah, it's been about a week, right? Ten days? I, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, they've made a lot of news lately, inadvertently. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Ford None of it and good. Walmart doing... Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, like you said, lack of future. Uh, Ford and Walmart doing AV deliveries and some, some VW speculation, and we'll answer some emails, but let's get back to the cars. And so the biggest question I have about the XC40 T5, and this is what I ask anytime I know somebody has driven one, did it have the red interior? No. Or like, oh, I, I have the red carpet. I, I have yet to see an XC40 with a red interior. Uh, the, the one I had had the, the off-white uh, sort of ivory colored interior, uh, which was quite nice. Um, definitely probably almost certainly something you would not want to have if you have young children um or if you like to eat in the car um definitely not a good <laughs> choice there uh but uh, otherwise you know very very attractive um the so the the XC40 um you know is the the newest addition to the Volvo lineup and it's the first model off their uh contact, compact modular architecture um so they they have Volvo now you know is now completely devoid of all their old um Ford era architectures you know all all that stuff's gone and everything is now on one of two architectures the spa the scalable platform architecture which is for the 60 and 90 series cars vehicles and the um cma or compact modular architecture for the for the 40 series and it's also going to be shared with um models from lincoln co another brand from uh, from Geely, which is the parent company that owns Volvo cars, at least. Not Volvo trucks, but just Volvo cars. They um, do own a good bit of Volvo trucks, too, from what I understand. Uh, I think they have uh, a minority investment. I think it's like no more than about 10% of Volvo trucks. Um, okay. But that's, Volvo, that's Volvo car and Volvo trucks split You know, back in, what, 89, I think, when Ford originally uh, bought 99. Volvo. 99. No, uh, no, it was earlier than that. It was, it was, huh? well, maybe it was. I thought they well, they split. 
before the Ford deal, right? And the yeah. Ford deal was ninety eight for ninety nine. So maybe they. I thought it was. Ni- I, I thought it was eighty nine. Anyway, it it, it doesn't matter. Been. It's 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 yeah. not it's not important. Um, <laughs> well, we're we're being geeky though. That's, that's true. <laughs> anyway, uh, so the XC40 is you know Volvo's entry into the the burgeoning compact cross premium crossover segment. You know, going up against the likes of the Cadillac XT4 and the uh, Lexus um, NX and um, the Audi Q3 and BMW X1 and and countless others. Um, and you know, it's, it, it's got a few, you know, it's got some of the signature design elements that you see on the larger, larger 60 and 90 series models, but it, you know, overall it's got, you know, things, things like the Thor's hammer signature headlights and, and they, you know, the taillight design, but the rest of it, you know, is quite distinctly different. It's, it's got a much chunkier, blockier look than a uh, XC60 or 90. Um, and I, I kind of like it. It's, it's kind of cool. It's, you know, it's different, um, you know, and doesn't look like every other compact crossover. Um, so it's a good look. And I, I especially like it, you know, in one of the various two-tone um, paint schemes. So you can get it with with a white roof. Uh, I think there's also a couple of variants with a black roof. I can't remember. But, um, you know, they're, all of the XC40s are powered by Volvo's 2-liter um, drive E uh, four-cylinder engines. The T4s are naturally aspirated, and the T5s have a turbocharger, just like the the T5s on the the bigger models. Uh, 248 horsepower, 258 foot-pounds of torque. Um, plenty of plenty of power, plenty of torque. Uh, you know, drives really well. The you know inside, um, you know the you know, this is typical modern Volvo, uh, which in many ways is good. But not always. Um, you know, it still has the same census infotainment system with the nine-inch portrait format, um, touchscreen, you know, three-page layout. Um, and you know, we have bitched and moaned about that, you know, repeatedly in the past. Um, I have. It's, it, I sure. Well, I, I said have. we. We we both have. Um, um, yeah, you know, and I to the point where I don't. I don't know how much he he knew that I've been so vocal about it but i i get in the car with russell datz who is oh, really? volvo's guy yeah and he was like no 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 dan <laughs> here's how census is supposed to work and he gave me a really cogent explanation where it's divided into now which is everything sort of in front of the driver you know the right that's, the kind, that's kind of the middle of the three screens right right yeah um and then anything that you have to actually touch the touch screen for and not use the voice commands or the steering wheel controls. That's that's for not now. That's for later, <laughs> or not driving time. Well, you know, and, I, and when you explain for, it that way, you know, if you know, if you are listening to the radio and you decide you want to listen to uh, a podcast or you know some streaming app or something, you know, in CarPlay or Android Auto, now you have to swipe away from that now screen and go you, and select you those. do, or um, you what? Wait until you stop, and then you can change the channel. No, <laughs> and so you use the voice commands, or you can switch sources, right? With the little, it's got the little rotary thingies on the steering wheel, right? The, it's like the little thumb wheel that you press too. Um, I, I don't Volvo believe that, you right? can activate, you know, the smartphone projection with that. 
that you know that'll let you oh, oh, I see. so like I if see, yeah. you can change between am and fm or satellite radio or you know bluetooth streaming that way right. but you can't i don't think i don't believe you can change the uh like you know to go into the smartphone projection and you know nope, also that makes sense you know if you um if you want to for example um you know change the audio settings you know if you were listening to some music and had it in concert hall mode and you want to switch it over to normal mode to listen to some audio you know some some spoken word stuff you know you still have to go over to the other screen you know so it's there there are times i mean i okay i i understand what russell's saying you know and i understand the basic principle of it um i just don't think that it necessarily works as well in practice as it does in theory. Um, yeah, and and you know, it, it's one of those interesting things to to sort of get to, walked through it by the folks who have that inside line, right? Like this is this is the philosophy that we followed when we designed and built the system, and when it's explained that way, it makes a lot more sense. Uh, whether or not it actually works as well in practice as it does in in explanation. Is is another thing, but uh, I'm I haven't been in a Volvo since uh, Russell and I took a little ride together, so <laughs> I'm I'm eager to try it out and you know set the presets and act a little bit more like an owner the next time I get one and try to just get real comfortable with, with Census and see if if that makes a difference. Because man, we gave Casey so much crap about it. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> I uh, still, it's still not my favorite. Yeah. Uh, you know, for for what it's worth, um, you know, and I didn't have. It's been you know, it's been several months since I drove a, another Volvo, um, to, so it's hard to do a direct comparison. But it did seem like this one was a little more responsive, a little faster. I don't know if they've you know made some tweaks in the software to speed it up, or maybe it's running a slightly faster processor behind the scenes. Uh, but it did seem a little more responsive than prior census uh, implementations that I've tried. It still looked exactly the same. It was the same interface, but it just seemed to run a little bit quicker. So leave that you know, for whatever it's worth. The, the, the only other thing that um, really bothered me about the XT40 is the, the gear selector. Um, they have, for, on the XT40, they have adopted the same electronic gear shift mechanism that is on the, the 60 and 90 um, plug-in hybrids. Uh, so, mm-hmm. you know, rather than the, the mechanical gear selector that you find on the non-hybrid versions of the, the bigger models, uh, this is the short stubby shifter that is just, you know, it's an electronic switch. There's no, um, you know, it's not mechanically tied to the transmission at all. And as on the hybrids, I don't know if you can hear that siren. There's a lot of those here in Miami tonight for I some mean, reason. you're in Miami. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, the, it has the same kind of um, behavior as the hybrids, where uh, you know it. As with most of these electronic shifters, it always returns to center after you do something. But uh, on most other implementations, you know, it's one push forward or back or to the side to go from park to one of the other positions. But on Volvo's implementation, for some reason, if you push it forward back one time or pull it back one time, that pops you into neutral from park. Yep. Uh, and so you actually have to 
pull, go forward twice to get reverse or pull it back towards you twice to get drive. And, you know, I, I know that, you know, uh, for an owner, they would probably get accustomed to that and, you know, finally started getting accustomed to it towards, towards the end of my week with it. But it still seems like a less than ideal uh, design, uh, you know, less than ideal interface for that. You know, if you tap it one time, you know, if you're coming out of another, of, out of a traditional vehicle where you, you pull the shifter, you know, back, you know, from park to one, you know, one position to reverse. And, and then, you know, uh, it's usually, you know, park to reverse to neutral to drive. Uh, that's usually the way it works. And even on most electronic ones, as I said, you, you know, one tap in one direction or the other gets you from park to reverse or to drive or to neutral. And, you know, this one you can, it's a lot easier to inadvertently end up in neutral and have the car start rolling on you, you know, before you realize it. Um, fortunately my driveway's flat, so it didn't really do that, but I, you know, it, Previously, you know, when driving the the hybrids, I did get into that situation where I was on a you know parked on a slope and had it start rolling on me, you know, and before I hit realized and hit, and hit the brake again. Um, so yeah. that's you know that I don't think that that's a good design. Um, I, I wonder if it's one of those things that's sort of almost overthought. You know, like oh, we're going to make it like a traditional shifter. Anything you do, you've got to pass through neutral. Um, like if you want to go from drive to reverse and reverse to drive, but I, I, I think, I think confusing. it is, you know, and I think this, this is, this is a problem that's not unique to Volvo. You know, I think a lot of these modern electronic gear select mechanisms are overthought in, in a variety of different ways. They're, you know, you, you've got a bunch of companies, you know, you know, the, I think this is one of the problems we have today is, um, you know, kids today. What can you say? No, um, <laughs> it, uh, it you know, desi as designer as we've gone from mechanical shift mechanisms or shift, you know, shift selectors to electronic ones. You know, the, the designers are rethinking how they work. You know, instead of basically emulating the you know what we had that everybody was accustomed to that that worked fairly reliably you know we're getting a bunch of you know whether it's push buttons or various mechanical switches uh, or electronic switches like this we're getting a, ver a variety of solutions that some you know seem to work in some ways but in, you know uh, in some other aspects they're I think they're they're definitely inferior um, you know and you know this is the kind of thing um, that also bit um, Chrysler you know, on some of their electronic shift systems. I mean, that's what uh, the the actor from the um, the new Star Trek movie, um, I can't yeah. remember his name now, who he accidentally got run over by his own Jeep. You know, he got out to, to check his mail, to get his mail out of the mailbox, and he thought he had put it, put the, the, the Jeep into park, and in fact ended up in, in neutral, and it rolled over him and killed him. Yeah, and I think you know this is something that could potentially happen, you know, with this vehicle if if you're not careful. So I think that you know there there are a lot of these electronic shift systems that are are not as well thought out as they should be. Um, and uh, so, but that's that's my only other real you know functional complaint about the XC40. The rest of it I really liked. I liked the size. You know the the performance was good. Um, you know the the ride and handling compromise was good. Um, the the rear 
the C pillars are a bit on the thick side, and you know if you're sitting in the back seat, you know if you if you look at the XC40 in profile, you'll see that like the the 60 and and 90, you know the belt line you know kind of sweeps up towards the back, but it sweeps up much more aggressively on the on the XC40, and so um, sitting in the back seat, uh, you get a bit of a claustrophobic feeling in there. Uh, but from the front, it's not too bad, although it does impact visibility. But, you know, like, like all other new vehicles, you've got the um, rear backup camera to, to help out with that. So it's less of a problem. Um, yeah. And, you know, the other thing about the XC40 um, is it's – I found it to be, you know, when you start pricing it out, it's actually quite a good value, especially, you know, I, mean, I think – when I did the uh, first drive in the Cadillac XT4 a couple of months ago, you know, I, I, you know, one of the things I complained about at that time was the the pricing. You know, the base price was fairly reasonable, starting at about thirty-seven thousand dollars on the on the Cadillac, but you know, you got a a lot of nickel and diming on you know individual options. You know, a lot of you know driver assist features and and other things. That quickly get the price well up into the fifty thousand dollar range, and you know when I was um, pricing pricing it out again, uh, you know compared to to compared to the sexy forty, you know I found that you know to get it uh, fairly comparably equipped to the sexy forty, it you know came out the XT four came out to about fifty two thousand dollars, the XT forty I was driving was about forty four and a half, um, so it's you know in the the premium. Uh, compact utility segment it's it's actually quite a you know quite quite reasonably priced um, and you get a lot for that money oh and and one other thing that i that i um, found was a big improvement on the xc40 is the pilot assist system you know which is volvo's you know semi partially automated uh, system that combines uh, some steering control with uh, the speed control it was much much improved on this one compared to any of the the xc60 or the 90 uh, or the s9 or v90 that i've previously driven um, you know it for the first time on any of those vehicles, the XC40 was actually able to consistently, the system was actually consistently able to keep the car in the lane, keep it centered in the lane, you know, and when you're, you know, going through a curve, you know, at highway speeds, um, you know, a freeway curve, it did not drift out of the lane. It stayed fairly centered in the lane, uh, which is something that the previous iterations, you know, they all started to drift. And, you know, this is not a hands-off system, even on the XC40. It's, a, you know, you will after a few seconds you know if you let go of the wheel you will get reminded uh to put your hands back on the wheel but even if you're holding the wheel lightly you know um it will it will stay in the lane quite quite well you know much better than on previous iterations of the system that i've tried uh, i think they're going to just continue to refine it uh each model in the XC40 probably being sort of the newest in the line has the newest hardware the newest software and it just does does it you know as well as it possibly can com even compared to the the other models that's my guess i don't know yep um one other, one other thing about the xc40 before we leave it uh is that uh you know it's the first volvo available through the care by volvo subscription package um and we'll talk I, a little we'll talk a little more about subscription yeah. later but were you gonna say something I was just going to say they they're they're still doing that they're committed to it. 
Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, when the when the S60 comes out, and and they'll be adding it, making it available on other models as well. So you know, on the the XC40, you know, there's a couple of different levels. You know, you can get the the base momentum level and and the the mid level trim. You know, starting at uh, it's like at five hundred and fifty dollars a month or six fifty a month. Um, and they, you know, that includes the the price of the car, um, all maintenance, including wear items. So things like tires, wiper blades, you know, all that stuff is all included. Uh, and insurance is also included. Um, and you can swap out the car once a, you know once a year. So every twelve months you can swap it for for a new car. And so it's it's kind of like a lease that's bundled with you know the insurance and service and maintenance, uh, but. You don't actually, unlike a, a typical lease, you don't have to make a down payment or other payments. You just pay this monthly this monthly fee, and then every twelve months you can swap swap the car for another one, and get a fresh car. Yeah, well, I think the XC40 lends itself really well to that, just because of its its size and its character. It's that urban crossover. Right? Yeah, the, absolutely. It, it's it's removing the the. Uh, the off-roadiness from you know a class of vehicle that was sort of born from SUVs but uh more often than not now they're for running around in uh a concrete jungle yes and you know with uh, you know with with that little bit of extra ride height and all-wheel drive you know it can hopefully tackle the uh the potholes a, a little better than uh well yeah you know, sedan light I mean, that was always the thing about it. you take like a, a Suburban or a Yukon or something, you know, something large like that to like Manhattan. It's so much easier. It's just, yeah, it's a big well, thing. Well, assuming you, assuming really you can find and... gaps to actually fit it through, though, in Manhattan. No, no, you make the gaps. People get out of your way. <laughs> I mean, maybe not well, so I mean, much. You know, but, if you, you drive, yeah. you know, you drive some of those side streets in Manhattan, you know, where delivery trucks are double parked and, oh yeah, you know. Something the size of a Tahoe, you're gonna have a hard time getting through many of those streets. That's that's true. That's true. It's not something I'd want to live you, with in the city, but you know, for, there is something to be said for a crossover an SUV in that environment, just because it, you know it's got a, a rugged suspension. It's designed to cope with a lot of the stuff that just you know is so obnoxious otherwise. In but so does a Crown Vic. <laughs> yeah, and I just you know. It, Put the little little light on top. People think you're a cop. You get out of your way. <laughs> get a yellow wrap on it, the, you know, or, or black. Yeah, uh, black. yeah. <laughs> it's just it's right. Make a little cash. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't you don't you don't want to be a gypsy cab. Uh, the the guys who actually paid for the medallions, they won't like you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're better off just doing. Just Uber. put a little Uber sticker on the front on the windshield, right. and you're good. Right. Right. Um, all right. So you also, it's interesting that you had the Q5 as well. Not that they're exactly the same thing, but the, you know, I, I'm interested to see what the, the difference or, or the contrast between the way Volvo does it with the XC40 and the way Audi does it with the Q5. Yeah. So the, the Q5 is actually a one size segment up from the XC40. So the XC40 competes with the Q3. Uh, then the Q5, you know, would be more of a competitor for the XC60. So it's, it's yeah. the, the midsize uh, crossover. And 
yeah, the the Q5, um, like the XC40, is powered by a turbocharged two-liter four-cylinder. Imagine that. You know, that seems to be the the way of the world these days. You know, if it's, if it's not uh, if it's not <laughs> if it's not a big uh, blown V6 or a V8, you know, it's usually a, a two-liter four-cylinder with a turbo. Um, you know, and it's uh, I think it's about 258 horsepower, if I recall correctly, um, in in this form. So this is the the same. Yeah, this is a a variation of um, you know VW's corporate you know two liter uh, direct injected four cylinder um, and uh, oh sorry two fifty two horsepower two seventy three foot pounds of torque and um, you know this this goes all the way down to like the one seventy four horsepower that you know I complained about in the um, earlier this this spring in the uh, uh, the Tiguan you know and then up to you know, in the case of the the Golf R, you know, a little over 300 horsepower. Yeah, 300, uh, so yeah. it covers a covers a pretty broad spread. Um, you know, in you know in the Q5, which is not you know, not exactly a lightweight. You know, it's about 4,000 pounds. Um, it uh, it you know it it does it's it's fine. It does plenty. It provides plenty of performance. You you most excuse me most drivers are not going to be at all disappointed with it you know it, it'll do zero to 60 in about five and a half 5.9 seconds something like that that's quick yeah well that's... i mean you know it's 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 no ludicrous tesla but you know it it's more than enough for almost anybody um you blow the doors off an irock or a oh yeah well, that's 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 not that hard um <laughs> those were fast cars in the day yeah in their day but you know that right. that day is long past. But I that's those are my sort of formative those those are my reference points. You know. Oh yeah, like, I, I know. I mean, you know, I I remember you know reading the car magazines back in 1983 when Ford revived the Mustang GT. You know, with um, you know with a five liter you know v8 or you know the, it was really more of a 4.9 but the, the 302 cubic inch v8 with a puny yeah. little two barrel carburetor and something like 157 horsepower you know and that was you know <laughs> but i mean that was huge back then because when the fox body mustang first came out uh in 79 it had you know their their downsized V8. You know they had dropped the dropped that. Was um, that a two fifty five or something? Uh, yeah, it was like a four point two liter. I think four four two or four four. Uh, it was four two. Uh, GM did a four four, and you know it was like one hundred and ten horsepower. It had about the same amount of power as the little one point six liter in my Miata. Yeah, and you know that was the <laughs> that was the uh, you know that was the waning days of. Uh, of the you know the malaise era and mm-hmm. you know the the mustang the the rebirth of the mustang gt was the you know the that's what brought you know performance back to cars you know and from there it just you know it went on you know for the second year you know they uh swapped the two two barrel carburetor out for a four barrel and went to 175 and then a couple of years later they added fuel injection and you know, and today, you know, a Mustang GT's got 460 horsepower, right. um, and, and, and gets better fuel economy than that that '83 did. Yeah, I just that's the thing for me. Like those those cars, sort of, they tuned my inner ear for what speed is, and uh, you know, getting into cars now, that's just everything's so quick. Yeah, um, you know, like uh, the Q5, like you said, like it's under six seconds to 60. That's that's. I, I mean, it's not the fastest thing I've ever driven, and. 
you can sort of get used to it on a daily basis, but that's, that's, that's still, that's no slouch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's no, nothing to complain about here. Um, you know, and, you know, this one's got Quattro all-wheel drive um, and uh, Audi's 7-speed uh, S-Tronic transmission, which is a dual-clutch transmission. So it's it's basically a longitudinal version of uh, of the VW DSG. Uh, it's a wet, wet dual-clutch system. Um, you know, and the Q5 is a really good-looking vehicle. Uh, I really like the design of it. You know, it's... Um, you know, it was one of the first of the current generation of Audis, you know, to adopt this new um, sharper edged version of the, the, the grill, you know, a big, big hexagonal grill. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, it's got really great proportions, uh, you know, for, for its size and everything. Um, it's got plenty of room inside. It's a 111 inch wheelbase, you know, so it's got, even, you know, good, good backseat room. Um, you know, comparable to, you know, to others in its class, you know, so, you know, the class, you know, you're looking at uh, models like the, uh, the Mercedes uh, GLC, um, the Lincoln Nautilus, um, you know, the um, Lexus RX and the, uh, Mercedes, or the, the BMW Q, uh, Q3 uh, or X3. Um, getting all these numbers and letters mixed I know, up. All the numbers and letters. And we complained about names, and now all the alphanumerics are getting us all confused too. So. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, you know the the uh, one of the interesting things you know that's uh, that was different in the Q5 compared to the A4 I drove a couple of years ago is that. Um, you know, it's got a, a similar similar setup. You know, it's got kind of the stubby electronic shifter, but you know, unlike the uh, the Volvo, you know, you push it forward once from park. Um, you know, give it uh, kind of a if you give it kind of a tap, kind of a half tap. Um, you know, it'll it'll go into neutral. But if you push it all the way forward, it goes to um, to reverse. Pull it all the way back, goes to drive. Um, you know, it's got paddle shifters um but ahead of the the shifter uh it's got the mmi control knob which i think works really well um what audi had been doing for the last several years uh with the mmi is they had embedded a touch uh touch pad surface into the top of the the controller the rotary controller and so they yeah. were doing you know you could do the the handwriting input you know put in um uh, letters and numbers, you know, for navigation destinations, right on the top of the controller knob. They now have a trackpad in front of it, and you know, around along the the forward edge of the trackpad, there's some uh, there's some kind of buttons there. They're they're marked, uh, you know, they're, they're numbered, you know, one through six, you know, for your radio station presets, you know, so you can just tap on there and you know get your radio presets. Um, and then on either side, there's a, a little area that's kind of marked off, you know, to um, to swipe to one side or the other uh, on the screen. But um, this is the first vehicle that where I've tried the handwriting recognition on a touch surface, where it the response is so much faster now than on anything that I've tried before. It's the first one I've tried where I, I think it's actually useful because you're not sitting there waiting between each number and each character you input. You know, it basically is almost instantaneously recognizes and goes on to the next one. Um, so this is, you know, this is the first of any from any brand that I've tried where I would actually seriously consider doing it that way if I wasn't using voice recognition um with with Android Auto um and 
you know, the, the Q5 uh, does support Android Auto and CarPlay. Um, and the you know the control is through the through the control knob, uh, so no touch screen uh, in the Q5. Uh, really nice screen, you know, everything looks really good, crisp, uh, bright. Um, you know, really pleased with driving this vehicle. And are, so, are you driving that now, or was it just around? Um, I just I dropped that one off this morning at the airport before flying down here to Miami. So that one's that one's gone. I've been driving it yeah. for the past week. I was just I was just wondering if you you've had the contrast between uh Michigan roads and Miami roads. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't I didn't drive that one down here to Miami. Uh so I'm I'm here actually here in Miami uh for an event with Ford uh they're doing demonstrations tomorrow with their uh automated vehicle program uh you know so they're going to be we're going to be riding around in Ford's automated vehicles uh, around Miami here and visiting their their depot where they're doing service and maintenance on the vehicles and seeing some of the various things that they're doing that they're trying out with these vehicles uh and uh, one of those things is something we'll, we'll talk about later on but uh what about you what have you been driving so i had last week i had the Kia Stinger GT2 um you know and it's just it's just very good. <laughs> uh, I have I, I've been more really wanting to drive the um, the Genesis G70, which I think shares the platform. So this was a nice preview of that. And uh, you know, I wanted to just echo your your complaints about the shifter, like in the Volvo and in the Audi. You know, the Stinger has uh, confusing gear shift too. You got to push it forward to engage reverse, which always seems weird to me. Um, partially because I'm just trained over years of driving the park is at the top and you pull down or pull back or whatever to get the other gears but I, in practice i wound up putting the thing in reverse when i really wanted park for the first couple of days this <laughs> park is a button you know but you know you go go forward with it right and so that that i, I think is just something we're all going to have to either get used to or they're all either going to have to standardize it i would perhaps like a standard because uh it's confusing jumping from car to car it's less so when you have the car and you drive it every day. But I think that that is just, it's like needless, needless it opens the door for needless error, I suppose, um, to have every car be slightly different. Uh, but, you know, overall, the, the Stinger is just a, it's a great car. It's kind of a shame. I'm thinking they're just, they're not going to move too many of these just because of, uh, sedans aren't, aren't that popular. And that, that's kind of a shame, you know, it sort of follows the pattern that the, the Chevy SS just did, right? That was around for a few years, and now it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we all liked it, but not enough people liked it to buy it. Uh, and that's well, this one, this one, you know, is more likely to to stick around for a while um, because you know the platform that it's using is going to be used for other stuff. You know, the the SS was you know the last model built off of the old um holden designed and built uh zeta platform i think you know which was from the old pontiac g8 and the last you know the last holden commodores you know so this was done down in australia and you know that that platform is gone and gm's australian manufacturing uh presence is gone now too so uh 
you know, the, this one, you know, the the, um, the Stinger and the, the G70, you know, that platform is going to be used for other stuff, you know, including some utility vehicles uh, almost certainly over, you know, in the next wow. year or so. So, uh, you know, we, we may, we may be lucky and, you know, keep those, keep these two models around for a while, just because the architecture that they're built off of, you know, is, is still going to be used for other, other products. Well, it'll make a really good utility vehicle. It makes a very fine sedan, uh, or actually not even a sedan, a hatchback. A, yeah, it's a five-door hatch. Yeah. And, and, and Kia has really just done it right. Uh, you know, it's. It's very well executed. The design is fantastic. It, it it comes out of their their Frankfurt styling headquarters, I think, which is you know Peter Schreier, who spent years at German automakers as well. So inside and out, it's it's very distinctive. It's very tasteful. It has that classic long hood proportion, and the the fastback roofline it hides its hatch well, which I think is actually to its benefit. Even though the hatch is really handy, and I like hatchbacks and i think it's it's just a really smart way to utilize that space in in an otherwise you know that that would otherwise be wasted in a sedan so that's good it makes it makes the car more useful and with a car like this that that's actually a plus because it uh, it it removes it beyond the realm of like just a, a fun time car you could use it as a family car and you know still get your jollies with it when the road gets curvy um the the funniest thing to me was that uh, you know, a couple of my coworkers saw me pull in in the morning with it, and they were very impressed with the flashy red sedan. And they were like, "But it's a Kia!" And they started doing that that whole Kia thing. <laughs> Who cares? Like, that right? Kia, and I was like, you know that what? Is, that is it's a Kia is is actually a great thing about a car these days, right. because you know they. You know they they have been on top in the JD Power you know initial quality surveys for the last two years. They're you know they're doing great in you know long term durability surveys. Kias Kias and Hyundai's are fantastic cars and they are among the best vehicles made today. Well, that was my explanation. I said I, it doesn't matter and that like doesn't hold up anymore. It's a, it, it may be a $50,000 Kia with the the GT2 is, you know, it's all wheel drive. It has all the options. It's just the priciest stinger, which makes it a tremendous value. Uh, it, was like, it drives like a $75,000 BMW. It's solid. It doesn't have any bad habits. It's very forgiving in terms of just the way it drives. You know, it handles well. It rides with discipline. I did find that, um, with the, the the turbo, so the, there's two engines with the Stinger. There's a turbo four cylinder, and then there's the twin turbo 3.3 liter V6. Um, with the V6, you there's a little bit of turbo lag in some like transitional situations, which I was a little surprised by. But what happens is you give it a poke, and you will get all the boost. <laughs> yeah. Maybe at a time you were not expecting it, like a little after you would have found it useful. Uh, <laughs> so you'll be in the, just the initiating stages of a tight turn and then you get more power and you got to be ready for it. And, they're, they're, so, giving, they're giving you a little bit of that old Porsche 930 feel. Yeah, I like, I like it, but it, I'm not surprised. Is, that, is yours rear wheel uh, drive or all wheel drive? Mine was all-wheel drive, but okay. it's definitely rear-biased. You, know, oh, you can yeah. feel it, it rotate. It, it rotates properly. It's just got a proper chassis. Uh, and 
I'm not surprised because of that behavior that you're seeing them pop up at auction with nose damage, <laughs> like insurance auctions. It's just, but uh, you know I I like that I like that sort of element of, of like oh you got to treat this thing with respect and it, it certainly it, it it just it's such a it, what it really reminded me of is this is just a really great E39. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and that's a really that's a compliment, you know, because people have been chasing that car for for I mean for twenty years, and uh, you know, this is really just if you just want a car that's just good to drive and it's comfortable, the back seat's a little tight, but it you know it's useful too. It's this is this is what your modern day enthusiast sports sedan is, and and I keep calling it a sedan just because that's that's sort of what it purports to be even though it's a hatch uh you know and and it's going to make a really entertaining utility vehicle if they can keep it doing the same thing with a little bit more ground clearance (laughs) yeah no i'm I'm sure that they will they will be uh quite successful with that and i'm i'm looking forward to see what you know what uh kia and and genesis come up with off this platform you know uh, imagine you know genesis what probably a, a GX 70 or GX 60 oh. or 80, whatever they end up calling it, um, you know, as a, as a real sporting utility vehicle, you know, to take on the likes of, you know, an X3, uh, probably, you know, an X3 or X5, uh, I guess X3 size X, probably. Well, yeah. I, it's not, it's not tiny. Yeah. Um, it, it's got a kind of a long, long stretch. I, I didn't, look at the wheelbase spec but it it's got some presence you know and i think that's what impressed people who who initially saw it was it's just it's good looking and it yeah i mean when definitely looks aggressive when yeah i mean when they first showed it last year at the uh, detroit auto show you know it it really grabbed everybody's attention i mean nobody was expecting this thing and especially when they you know announced that you know the thing was called the stinger you know it was it was definitely the star of the show last year yeah, and it's a you can't you can't buy a better or a much better car for the same money. You can buy some something that's different, but it even in GT2 trim where it does it'll push sixty grand. It might even go a little bit over. It's it's still a really good deal, you know. Um, it, I'm trying to think of the so the stuff that bugged me was was the shifter. Uh, I did notice that, um, especially on a cold morning, uh, you know, moving it around in the driveway, just like down the, the apron of the driveway and stuff, the, it seemed like the, you could hear the doors and the, the window glass kind of shifting around a little bit against their seals, which would indicate like, is the body structure twisting or what's going on there? But it, you know, out on the road, it feels real solid. So I'll just, I'm willing to just give that a pass. And it's not the only car I've had that has done that. Um, and the, uh, the infotainment, it, you need to use the voice commands with it. It's a much better experience. Uh, if you are poking at the screen with the, the buttons, the touch screen, it's, it's not quick or efficient enough. So you learning to love the voice commands, which do work well, uh, is, is going to be your, your key to infotainment bliss in the stinger. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to criticize a car that drives that well, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I certainly can't complain about it. I I was really pleased when I drove it. Uh, I guess it was earlier this year. Yeah, 
um, and you know, really pleased with it. I'm looking forward to trying out the uh, the G70 in the not too distant future. I know I was going to have a manual. Yeah, um, yeah, that 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 that'll be a surprise in a Genesis. The last one yeah. with a, the last gen, the only other previous Genesis with a manual was the uh, the original Genesis Coupe. Yeah, and I, I drove one of those. It was uh, it was not that refined. No, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of fun, but you know, kind of rough around the edges. Yeah, it was a little. Yeah, needed a little bit more uh, finishing school. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's let's move on. Uh, we were talking about the Volvo subscription program, um, but uh, GM has decided it was it was all in and then all out on uh, subscription. It was, it was really interesting. I just listened to an Autoline episode. Uh, it's probably a couple of weeks old, but um, they had the president of uh, the National Auto Dealers Association on, and he was he was explaining that the subscription thing is it's something that all the automakers are trying but there's not a not a real clear path forward to profitability from it and it, you know taking it from a dealer I'll, I'll take that with a little bit of a grain of salt but it, it's it, it's a question about you know it seems like it's a premium level service and so you're shutting some customers out and then it, it's not necessarily something that can be profitable and I think that's what GM kind of learned, right? A little bit was that just book is not gonna, not gonna work for them. Well, yeah. So book in its original uh, configuration is not gonna work. You know, they've they've suspended the program for now. They've said that you know they are gonna come back with a subscription program, but they're gonna rework it. You know, and I think you know when when they were talking about issues with profitability with subscription, you know, one of the things we've seen over the last year and a half or so to yeah, best about a year and a half since book launched GM was the first one, you know, to launch this kind of subscription program, first automaker to do it. Um, and we've seen other manufacturers come up with a variety of different variations on the theme of, you know, paying a flat monthly fee, you know, and, you know, at various intervals being able to swap out the cars for, for different cars. Book was kind of the, uh, you know, the, Took it you know to an extreme where you paid a you know flat monthly fee. I think it originally started at fifteen hundred dollars a month. They later raised it to eighteen hundred. Um, and like the the Volvo Care by Volvo system, you know that included insurance and maintenance on the cars. The difference with Book was that it gave you the option to at any time you could swap. You know you could select any car from the Cadillac lineup. Or any vehicle from the Cadillac lineup, so that meant you know you could take ATS, CTS, uh, XTS, um, CT6, XT5, uh, or Escalade. You know, and, and you know you could even get the the V series models, the ATS V and CTS V. Um, and you know, so depending on what you wanted to drive on any given day, you know, you could you, know, you could swap out you know if you wanted to take a, a family road trip you could get an escalade you know or um you know if you wanted something a or little a more CTSV. practical you could, yeah, you, <laughs> yeah yeah well d- depending on you know the nature of your family yeah that that could be the appropriate solution <laughs> um depending on where you want to go i mean if you want a road trip to say monticello motor park or sports park things like that yeah there you go. yeah um so the the issue with you know, and and others, uh, some manufacturers are, um, 
did something similar to that. You know, Porsche, uh, for example, P Porsche Passport, um, you know, they did a similar thing. They actually split it up into two tiers. You know, the, the base tier gave you the option to choose from uh, the Boxster Cayman or the Macan. And you could swap out at any time, and then the the, the more expensive option um, would you could also include the uh, the Cayenne, the 911, uh, or Panamera. And the problem with all of those um, you know, is you had, particularly for those two brands, for Porsche and Cadillac, you had fairly limited lineups of vehicles. And there, there is actually a lot of cost associated with, you know, for the, the dealers and for the manufacturers with doing that kind of program where you can swap in and out of cars at any time. Because, you know, there's a lot of complicated logistics with, you know, picking up cars, delivering cars, getting them cleaned, getting them prepped before they go on to somebody else. Yeah, um, I mean, just ask the guys that have to drop off the cars to journalists. Exactly, yeah. They, I mean, it, you know, it, it, gets, it gets very expensive very quickly. Um so, you know, it, that, that's why those, those programs are fairly expensive because, you know, they're trying to find the right price point that people would be willing to pay for it, but where, you, you know, you can still actually cover all your costs. Um, so it, it, they, they were problematic programs. Um, and again, you know, for the, for the customer, you also had, you know, some fairly limited lineup of cars to choose from, especially with Cadillac. Um, there are other companies. There's a company called Clutch, uh, which is based out of Atlanta, and you know what they do is they actually work with dealer groups. So they'll get a, a group of dealers together, covering multiple brands, and they will put together a pool of cars, uh, vehicles of various types, ranging from small cars to midsize, SUVs, pickup trucks. Um, and, you know, they put together like three different pricing tiers, you know, so for more mainstream models, um, mid, you know, kind of mid, mid-level models and then, you know, more premium brands and, you know, doing this similar kind of thing where you could swap in and out any time, but now you, you know, because you have the option of, for example, picking a pickup truck. If you need a pickup truck for a weekend, you know, to go pick up some building supplies, um, or you want an SUV for a ski trip, or you want a car for your your weekly your daily commute, you know, you have for the customer, you have more flexibility in what kinds of vehicles you want to choose from. Again, you have the same issue with costs and logistics of managing the program. Um, so, you know, they're not cheap and, you know, it's not clear what the path to profitability is, you know, and then you've got, um, more restrictive programs like what Volvo is doing. Volvo only allows you to swap out once a year. Um, Lincoln has got a program that they're, they're piloting where, uh, you can swap out the vehicle every month. Um, and you can choose from any, any vehicle in the Lincoln lineup. Um, you know, and then the pricing, you know, depends on which model you choose. So, you, rather than paying a flat monthly fee every month, um, you may be paying. If you choose a, a Navigator one month, you're obviously going to pay more than if you then the next month switch to an MKC or an MKZ. Um, so, but you know, you have you still have some some flexibility there, and it's a little easier to manage 
for for the dealers that are that are participating in the program. So far, you know, none of these have gone national or really widespread, and we'll see. The, I think the most popular one so far has actually been the Volvo program, the the Care by Volvo. Um, you know, and they're right now they're trying to Volvo is trying to limit it to about ten percent. 10, between 10 and 15 percent of their sales on the XC40, um, you know, while they they gradually try to grow the program and make sure that you know everything is working and you know that they can actually be profitable doing it. Um, but we'll we'll see. I think you know I think we'll see more experimentation over the next few years as you know manufacturers and dealers try to figure out the the right business models as the 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 business changes, you know, and that the auto industry changes. Yeah. I mean, I think they're, they're definitely trying to find what works for the, the modern idea of car ownership and usage. I, I'm just curious though. It feels a little short sighted. It feels a lot short sighted. Basically you're creating this fleet of rental cars and uh, we all know what happens to rental cars once they have lived their rental lives. They go and they get sold at kind of depressed resale value. And I'm wondering if they're trading, uh, you know, long-term uh, value retention for short-term subscription. You know what I mean? Like, aren't they aren't they sort of harming their brand in the long run? Um, potentially, and that, you know, this is part of the reason why you know. Uh, most of these programs have only been available on a very limited basis so far because they're they're trying to understand you know what is that impact going to be you know if they if they do this you know you know how are the customers going to accept it what kind of plan do they like and you know what's going to be the impact you know on these cars coming back into you know coming back to the manufacturers you know after they've been in service for a year or two um, you know I think in in most cases, you know what you know. What's more likely to happen, especially for the premium brands, is you know they're more likely to get refurbished and be sold off as a CPO, a certified pre-owned model, as opposed to you know just going straight to auction. Um, because you know that's there's there's definitely more profit in the CPO business than you know than just selling to auction or the traditional straight up used car sales. Yeah, I certainly, personally, I wouldn't have a problem buying a used X Fleet car. You know, you know that it's had lots of miles put on it. It's been shaken down, you know, and because it's a fleet car in that sense, it's been maintained as well. So it wouldn't bother me, but there's just going to be a bunch of them on the market, and they're going to have to get get bought by someone. So I, I don't know. I I think it's GM, not so much, but maybe Ford. To a I, I see automakers. Just they're kind of grasping around at stuff, and you know, like Ford in particular, they're investing in what scooters and bikes and stuff that's not cars. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and their cars are kind of old now. So, well, the cars are going away anyway. You know, it's just going to be Mustangs and SUVs and uh, and pickup trucks going forward. Yeah, well, on the the pickup truck, I know the uh, there's a new F series coming. They're they're working on that. They're not they're not stupid. They know what you know what their bread is buttered on. Oh yeah, you know, and the 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 Ranger you know just started production a couple of weeks ago. Um, they'll be hitting dealers in the coming weeks. Um, the Broncos coming up, you know, new Broncos coming up 
sometime in, in 2019. And there's going to be a bunch of other new crossovers and, and SUVs coming uh, next year. And actually, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to uh, listener email. Um, but why don't, why don't we uh, why don't we move on? Um, you know, I think there's still there's still much to learn, you know, from these subscription programs, and you know, we haven't seen the final variations of these yet. So we'll see a lot more experiments. But um, speaking of experiments uh, and failed experiments, uh, Faraday Future, <laughs> um, which apparently I, has no future. Well, I don't know. They didn't. They just so over the last couple of weeks, they've had a bunch of executive departures and stuff that just like one of the co-founders decided to take a hike, and that's never good. Uh, and by the time you get to your co-founder leaving, it's, it's probably a pretty good uh, indication that you're not you're not going to make it. But I saw it today, and I don't know uh, the details of the story. I thought they just got some sort of investment as well. Uh, did they? I. Don't. Uh, I'm not sure how uh, how deep it is or, or what, but that, the last I saw in passing on Twitter was that they are getting some sort of cash infusion. But either way, uh, I, I, I can't I can't see anybody you know necessarily um, you know being. I, I think anybody with some sense would probably not want to throw more good money after bad. Um, I'm just, I'm just pulled up, uh, Sean O'Kane's latest story from earlier this afternoon. Um, I don't see anything here, but, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't think he's, uh, I don't think they've gotten any new, new money and no, I can't, I, I, don't, no, I don't, I may be in error. Okay. Um, I know, you know, a year ago. Um, you know, last year at CES in 2017 at CES, you know, they, they had their big shit show press conference, um, <laughs> you know, which was just a, a total farce. Uh, and you know, they were at that point, they were planning to build a billion dollar factory in North Las Vegas. And, um, that completely fell through. They never got further than just moving some dirt around on the lot. Um, they eventually abandoned that, uh, by the end of 2017, they were, pretty much out of money um and then early this year uh some chinese investors came through with with what was supposed to be an additional two billion dollars in funding and part of that deal was that uh jai Teng, the uh, um the ceo was basically supposed to be sidelined he had been seen by m- most people as you know the root of the problems at faraday and uh yeah, he was supposed to be sidelined in this deal, and he apparently was not thrilled about that. And you know, if we'll we'll put a link to uh, to the coverage that uh, Sean O'Kane's been doing for The Verge, which has has been really good. He's been doing some great reporting on this. But you know, basically they you know they they got their first tranche of money from uh, Evergrande, uh, the the Chinese investors that were going to put the money in there. It was about eight hundred million dollars earlier this year, and they have evidently burned through most of that by July. Um, and uh, you know, then they 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 were not meeting their commitments, and the investors did not want to put any more money in. And and uh, over the last several weeks, they've laid off much of their staff, um, cut the salaries of re- most of the remaining staff, 
and it's just been a complete mess. Uh, and I know uh, at least one person I know of, uh, one friend that uh, went to work there um, back in June or July of this year, June of this year. Uh, he left about uh, about a month ago uh, and has taken another job. He, he was doing uh, PR there. He's, he's moved on and uh, taken another job, uh, moved, moved, to, moved back to Europe. Uh, to take that right. job, uh, and, uh, and that's that's Matt Davis, um, and then uh, uh, I know uh, a couple other people there. I'm still not sure what their what their ultimate fate is, but I, I doubt that they'll be working there much longer. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the the plug simply gets pulled in the not too distant future. Oh, so I found the little blurb that I had seen. Um, apparently, it's just a there's an offer. For uh, 900 million over three years via indirect STO, which is a security token offering. Oh uh, boy! I, I, that, right. So anytime you're I, token I offering or coin offering, yeah, that's that, that's gonna yeah. be a, a not gonna be a, a good uh, good outcome. Right. No, I, that's why I was like, oh, okay, so it's like Bitcoin. Awesome. We're gonna yeah. just have the global distributed spreadsheet of. Uh, yeah, whatever. Um, so, so basically, we're talking Faraday, no future. Yeah, uh, and so like the other thing about Faraday too is the car is beautiful, right? The, the actual like the vehicle, yeah, it, it, it looks well really done. good. Um, but they didn't. They're not exactly Tesla, right? Like Tesla, at, at the very least, you know, for all their their warts, they really innovated and they have their own unique technology. You know, Tesla um, power electronics. Very good. Tesla Motors, very good. Uh, their their battery software, very good. There's a lot of stuff that they do that only they do, uh, and it's not like the days of the the 20s and 30s, right, where there were lots and lots of automakers and they were all buying the same pieces from everyone and just assembling the cars and putting a brand on it with some you know some unique styling, right? They, all, there's this vast wasteland of brands from that time that weren't anything special. They were just the parts assembled and, you know, with somebody's name on them. And that almost strikes me like what a lot of the now sort of fledgling EV companies are doing. You know, you've got, you know, Faraday Future where they were buying the stuff from suppliers. and Well, they were buying together, batteries right? and stuff from suppliers. Uh, but, you know, I think they're, you know, they, they had uh, they had hired. Uh, two and a half years ago, they hired Peter Savagian uh, from GM as uh, their VP of uh, powertrain engineering. And, you know, Pete, you know, he had a long history at, at uh, GM, you know, going back to the EV1. And, you know, he had, he had a lot of patents to his name. Um, and, uh, you know, he, I think that, you know, they were, they were probably working on some stuff, you know, on the powertrain side, the power electronics and the, the motors that was probably just that could have potentially been, you know, as good as anything that Tesla was doing. You know, I'm, I'm confident that, you know, given the opportunity, you know, uh, Pete Savagian, you know, definitely could have done that. That said, you know, who knows, you know, what would have actually come out of this. Um, but it, it would have been interesting to to see them, you know, get a real shot. Uh, but I don't think that's that's ever going to happen now. Well, I'm sure that what's actually going to happen is the pieces will get picked up and the people will go elsewhere. And, and many of them already have. Right. Will arise, uh, 
you know, the the talent and the 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 lessons learned will sort of in, infiltrate other companies. You know, more than one. It's kind of like the. Um, if you ever read the book Fire in the Valley, uh, just sort of the the fledgling sort of Silicon Valley, uh, mid seventies to early eighties, you know, with the rise of personal computers, it was like this this free for all, just the companies popping up and failing, and uh, people just going from one of those to another to another, and you know, finally getting to this point of stasis after twenty plus years. Uh, so we're we're in that, uh, you know, again, just that churning of you know, companies trying things and failing. And so, I, you know, 15 years from now, it's going to be really, really different and interesting. And we'll have some viable manufacturers. I hope so. That yeah. would be nice. Uh, all right. So let's, let's jump, uh, jump down to, uh, you know, we talked about Ford and, you know, Walmart, Navy, they're going to do deliveries, uh, which, you know they're trying to just take people out of cars. Yeah, well, what 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 Ford is doing is they're trying to create you know an end-to-end transportation solution um, or provide end-to-end transportation solutions. So you know they you know they know that they're going to be selling you know vehicles for you know con- traditional conventional vehicles for a long time to come, um, as is as are you know other manufacturers. The the bulk, you know, it's going to be a while before, you know, and quite a few years yet before automated vehicles really become mainstream and become, you know, comprise the the bulk of uh, vehicle sales and deployments. You know, we're not we're talking, you know, not till you know into the twenty thirties before they start to reach a majority state. Um, but in the meantime, you know, as they try to get these vehicles out on the road uh, in the next few years. You know, Ford and other companies are, you know, looking at the business models around these vehicles, you know, and they're looking at, you know, transportation as a service, mobility as a service, and trying to, you know, trying to try to see how they can generate as much revenue as possible, you know, and that means, you know, utilizing the vehicles as much as possible. So, um, you know, part of that, you know, they, you know, last year they did, about a year ago, they did an experiment with Domino's in Ann Arbor with, you know, looking at the potential for delivering pizzas with automated vehicles. And they were evaluating the, the user experience around that, you know, how, how customers would interact with the vehicle, an automated vehicle delivering a pizza to them. Um, and then earlier this year, they, you know, when they launched their development, you know, their testing program here in Miami, um, you know, they announced that they were going to be continuing to partner with Domino's as well as with Postmates and with Lyft. And, you know, they're developing this, this service platform, uh, this logistics platform to tie in, you know, multiple companies and, you know, and so that multiple companies can have access to these vehicles to, to utilize these vehicles for doing various kinds of deliveries, picking up customers, to, you know, moving customers around. Um, and you know, trying to you know get the vehicles used as much of the day as possible and generating revenue, so they're not just sitting around idle. And the latest uh, part of that is uh, bringing in Walmart. Um, you know, so Walmart, their 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 next test that they're starting is uh, using uh, using these vehicles or te- you know using evaluating the the uh, ability to test or to deliver groceries from Walmart 
uh, with automated vehicles. And Walmart, uh, a few months back, uh, announced a deal with uh, Waymo as well. So they're they're doing some experiments with Waymo in Arizona. Um, again, utilizing Waymo's vehicles to um, you know, when customers. Uh, order their groceries online. They would, you know, somebody, you know, staff at the Walmart store would package them up, uh, and the Waymo vehicle would go pick up the customer, bring them to the store. They'd pick up their grocery order and then take it home, uh, or perhaps you know stick around, do some other shopping at the store while well, they're yeah, there. That always seemed weird to me. Is like, why, why is it taking the person to the store? Why isn't it taking the stuff to the person? Um, well, this is this is one of the things that they're trying to figure out is okay if you if you just have the vehicle and you pack the groceries in the vehicle, the vehicle goes off. Um, you know, how do you you know if you have a, an unmanned vehicle, how do you get the groceries into the house? You know, you have to schedule it when somebody's at home to get the groceries because somebody's got to take that stuff out of the vehicle. Um, do you deliver it to their uh, to their office, or you know, what do you, what do you do with it? You know, so they're trying to figure out what is how, what's the best way to make this whole system work. So it's not just a matter of putting uh, putting putting the groceries into a, an automated vehicle, but then what happens once it gets to the destination? Um, and so they're they're trying to figure that out right now. And so the the vehicles that they're actually going to be using for this test uh, with Ford. Are not actually going to be automated. Um, you know, it's going to be like the uh, the Domino's vehicle, where um, you know it's got sensors on it and everything. But there will be a human driving the vehicle. But they'll be using the sensors, using cameras and stuff to look to to record how people interact with the vehicle. You know, are they willing to come out to the curb to get their groceries? Um, you know, or you know, how how's that going to work? Or you know in different weather conditions. If it's raining, you know, are people going to want to come outside to get their groceries? I mean, they, they do that today. You know, when you, when you go to the grocery store, you know, you take your groceries from the, from the trunk of your car and take them in the house. Right. What, what, you know, how, you know, are they going to be willing to do that? You know, with an automated vehicle, if the stuff's being delivered, you know, normally if you're, if you're getting something delivered, they bring it right to your door, not just to the curb. Um, you know, how is this going to work, you know, for people living in an apartment building? Um, so they're, they're trying to understand all this now, you know, before they're ready to do, you know, do a full deployment. So they, they want to figure out what is the best overall procedure for this? Um, you know, what kinds of groceries are reasonable to deliver in this way, you know, or what, what kinds of products can be delivered this way? Uh, so there's, there's a lot of questions that they, they're not quite sure what the what the answers are going to be, and so that's what this test is all about. I, I'm confused. You know, there's a lot of this sort of testing to, to like take take people out of it, right, and make everything a convenience. Um, where do all the like when where do all the jobs go? <laughs> and I'm just thinking like Walmart. Walmart's done a pretty good job like killing Main Street already. Do they really need to kill like delivery jobs too? That's well, I mean, this is this is one of the interesting things you know that they're trying is, you know, even before we get to automated vehicles, you know, the Walmart's also working with Postmates, you know, and I think by the end of the year they expect to have 
post deliveries available through Postmates from 800 stores in 100 cities around the U.S. And part of this, you know, I mean, you know, think about it. If you if you go to the grocery store, you know, and you know, you're buying some produce or you're you're buying some some meat, you usually spend a little bit of time, you know, looking through the the produce, you know, making, you know, picking out the stuff that, that looks good. You know, you don't want the, the wilted lettuce. You want the one that, that looks nicer and, you know, is in, in better shape. You want the, the, you know, the steak that's got some nice marbling in it, nice, nice fat on it. Um, and so part of what they're doing um, already, even before the automated vehicle stuff is, you know, they've got these, uh, they're calling them personal shoppers in the store, you know, that when you place an order online, you know, then they will go and select all the stuff for your order and package it together. So, you know, they're, they're doing this stuff in the store. Now, presumably at some later stage, you know, as this gets up to scale, they're probably going to automate a lot of that process as well. But, you know, at least for the time being, you know, they're, they're still utilizing people in this process somewhere. And then, you know, when you do get to automated vehicles, there's, there's a lot of other areas where the, you know, where people are going to be needed, you know, in terms for cleaning up and, and maintaining the vehicles. And, um, you know, there, there's all kinds of things that need to be done with the vehicles as well. So I think, you know, the, this is, again, this is all part of the, the, all of the unanswered questions around this technology. There's a lot of potential benefits out of automated driving technology, but there's also a whole lot of questions that we don't know the answers to yet. And this is what everybody's trying to figure out right now. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm just uh, confused about where it's actually going to um, going to shake out. And you know, as a consumer, when everything gets a little bit overly automated, like it sounds like a luxury too. Right? Like oh, I'm going to have my personal shopper shop for me. Um, some of that, I guess, like there's certainly parts of of the economy and. and uh, just parts of, of society that uh, some people feel like shopping is a chore, right? It's just like they feel like driving is a chore. So, all right, I get it. Um, what do you what do you do otherwise? Uh, <laughs> like, I like going to the store. Like, I, 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 I hate I hear it. You. I, and I went to um, I went to Home Depot over the weekend because I had to do something around the house, and they replaced a whole bunch of cashier lanes with the self scanning checkout things. And so now they have one person manning a bunch of stuff where you're now doing, you're providing the labor. And it's, it's almost like in some instances, um, you're providing the labor and you'll pay more. Not in that, that particular instance, but like, uh, it just, it boggles the mind when you start to like, think about what, what is actually happening. Like, wait, they've, they've removed staff and I'm doing the work, but prices continue to go up. Like what the hell? I, I hear you, you know, and I, this, this is part of why, you know, I mean, this is part of some of my, you know, I, I have some skepticism around all of this stuff. You know, I, I think that, you know, there's, there's, there's still a lot that we don't know. Um, and I think, you know, we, we've, we need to, we need to experiment with some of this stuff to figure out, you know, what's, what are actually going to be the consequences, um, and it, you know, only only once we actually try it will we will we really understand the the real impact of this technology. Yeah. Well, now that I've can just sound like a complete old man. 
<laughs> told everybody to get off my lawn. Um, it, it is. It'll be interesting, and and we'll see how it works out. And uh, you know, if we're all eating pre-selected food that's just lovely, and uh, we have more free time, then I don't know. We'll we'll, we'll do something else, right? We'll we'll uh, we'll make better music or write better we'll, books. We'll we'll be able to sit around and think of stuff. Sure. That's Think the big thoughts. Is, right. And I just love all the um, the think pieces about like, well, robots are going to take our jobs. You know, work will be obsolete. It's like, ah, we've heard that before. Yeah. And I don't uh, think that's going to be the I would, case. I wouldn't worry about that anytime soon. Yeah. I'm not throwing away my tools. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So we had some, some emails and some uh, interactions on Twitter that we wanted to get to. Yeah, so let's go through the uh, the emails first. First up, we had uh, uh, Clay, who's asking, uh, he said uh, he loved the old Autoblog podcast and followed us to wheel bearings. Uh, thank you, Clay. Uh, his friend Brett has a 2015 Edge Titanium with a 3.5 liter V6 and front wheel drive. Lives in Birmingham, Alabama and rarely has snow, uh, but he's hankering for more power. The Edge is the smallest vehicle he's ever had and doesn't desire to go smaller. Previous vehicles being an 07 uh, Tahoe LTZ, a loaded X Expedition and an Explorer Eddie Bauer V8. He really likes the looks of the Audi SQ5 in and out. Uh, I do too. That uh, looks good. Um, likes the interior and ride of the BMW X3 after spending some time in one and is liking the look and power numbers of the forthcoming Edge ST. But the price hike and lack of major upgrades to the interior leave him wanting uh, to keep hunting European. Uh, I've encouraged uh, the 2.7 liter Lincoln Nautilus. Um, being miserly myself, I'm hesitant to recommend anything European due to maintenance and repair costs. He, he has a uh, Clay has a loaded uh, 2016 Fusion Hybrid that he loves. Um, his friend has a short commute, about 10 miles round trip. Uh, fuel mileage isn't critical. The cost of ownership long term is important, as he usually keeps his cars for more than five years and doesn't want to lease. So he's looking, you know, forty-five to fifty thousand dollar price range. What crossovers and utilities are we not thinking about with emphasis on power, uh, then interior features, then sporty looks? Feel free to include cars forthcoming in the next two years as he plans to wait until he finds something that he just can't pass up. Certified used can be considered, but isn't ideal. Thanks in advance. Uh, we'll be listening. So, um, first thing, you know, he, he mentioned in this uh, question here, you know, the SQ5, uh, which kind of starts at about $57,000. So I think that's kind of, at least for a new one, that would be out of your price range of forty-five to fifty grand, um, unless you want to go for a used one. Um, the, you know, the Nautilus, you know, I've driven the, the Nautilus and it's really good, but I think that it's pretty you know, given you know what he's described, you know the other models he's described here. I think it's probably not the right character for what he's looking for. You know, I think it's got good performance, but I think it's not really the right character here. Um, well, he's already got an edge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, and you know, as good as the Nautilus is, you know, it's basically a fancier edge. Um, and you know, it's also going to be on the high end of this this price range. Um, the you know, as I was reading this question earlier, the 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 thing that came to my mind is, um, you know, since he's he, he'd probably prefer something a little bit larger, is actually the new Explorer, which is coming next spring. Uh, you know, it's an all new model. You know, it's based on a completely new architecture. It's uh, Ford's new. Um, 
rear drive based um, unibody architecture, uh, and it'll also be available with all wheel drive. Um, I'm pretty sure it'll be available um, at least with you know one of the nano V6s, either the 2.7 or the 3 liter uh, twin turbo V6, um, possibly also the 3.5 uh, twin turbo. Um, so you know, I think that is probably the one I would suggest maybe waiting for. Um, what about you? What do you think? Well, I was actually going to ask what you thought the Aviator was going to start at. Because uh, it sounds like there's some affinity for luxury. Mm-hmm. And the Aviator is just... And we, we're going to see the production version at L.A., right? Yeah, uh, in, yeah we in a couple of weeks. Concept. Yep. Man, that concept was just beautiful. Um, so if it, if it comes close to the concept, it, it's going to be nice. Uh, I'm assuming it's probably going to be outside of its price range. Um, yeah, the, I would aviator. guess I would guess it's probably going to start in the mid fifties and go up from there. So, you know, probably the way he might want it, you know, it's probably going to be closer to, you know, sixty five, seventy grand. Right, uh, that was my thinking. Was like you might be able to get one to start within your price range, but it's it's probably not going to be with all the goodies. Um, but the the it, expedition or the sorry the explorer is you know on the same platform as the aviator. Um, yeah, it's going to be roughly the same size and, you know, it's, you know, it, it's definitely going to be a a far superior vehicle to the current Explorer. Um, you know, and so I think, you know, I, I would think, I think that that is probably one worth maybe waiting for and taking a look at next spring. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Um, I'm trying to think of, of what other stuff, you know, I really, really, I, I, I really like what Acura's done. I kind of like everything they make. Um, yeah. especially the A-Specs. So, you know, uh, an MDX A-Spec is, and I had that last week, I, I think, and we talked about that a little bit on the podcast the last time. Um, it's not, it doesn't, it's, it's powerful-ish, but it's not like, you know, it doesn't have a twin-turbo engine or anything like that. So it, it, that may not be your cup of tea. And, but know, what, what you might want to consider is the MDX Hybrid. Um, which is really too oh, yeah. more, you know, for more performance oriented, um, you know, and that so that one's going to be a little more powerful. You know, that's going to be in that 350 horsepower range uh, total. You know, and it's a three motor hybrid, so you've got uh, two motors on the front axle along with the engine, and one on the rear axle. Um, so I, I would I would take a look at that one maybe. Yeah, that's the sport hybrid, right? The, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean. I, He's kind of covered all the bases with all of the like the usual suspects like Audi and BMW. It's like, yeah, I mean, go go, go drive those things, <laughs> see if you like them. Um, I tend to like the Acura stuff just because it's it's more about chassis discipline and handling, and yeah, it has enough power to uh, entertain you, but it, they're not they're not super overpowered or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, report back. Maybe we're. We're getting closer to the marker. At least just let us know what you think of those cars. And, you know, yeah, you know, a stab and, at it. you know, if, if not the uh, the MDX, you know, the RDX is also another one, you know, that's worth taking a look at. You know, it's it's a little bit smaller. You know, it's uh, yeah, I guess it's a little smaller than the Edge, uh, but and you know, it's not quite as powerful as some of the other ones you're talking about here. But um, you know, it really has that sporting feel, and I think that uh, I think that that you know, you might you might find yourself uh, enamored with that one if you take a look at it. So I I would check out the uh, the RDX A spec, 
Um, and you know, it's it's right in the the lower end of that price range, you know, that forty five thousand dollar range. Um, and then you know, also consider waiting until the uh, the new Explorer comes out in the spring. Yeah, yeah. So let us let us know if and, you have any. And you know, if you really want to go, you know, totally insane, you know, you could always go for a Trackhawk Grand Cherokee Trackhawk. <laughs> I mean, you know, SRTs, seven hundred horsepower. Yeah, uh, that that is true. That is true, but I owning a Grand Cherokee and now it's got a hundred thousand miles on it. I, I'm not sure that that is a sixty thousand dollar vehicle, you know. And, and I know the Trackhawk has more than that too, but yeah, it's it's about ninety. Yeah, um, I'm not quite sure that it it's actually built uh, in accordance with the way it costs. Not that it's bad. Don't get me wrong. I I love the Grand Cherokee. Um, but that's a that's a solid forty thousand dollar vehicle. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's a Hellcat. I know, I know. Uh, the SRT is in there too. You could you could also yeah. forego the uh, the Hellcat. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, and they that that does that drives well. It does. Yeah, it drives really well. All right. Next up, uh, let's see. We had uh, from Tim. Uh, Poor seat comfort in the Jetta Sport Wagon. Uh, Tim uh, likes the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate that. Um, he recently, uh, in March of this year, purchased a 2013 Jetta Sport Wagon TDI post-fix uh, and overall enjoys the car. For the first time since driving, I find the front seat in the Jetta to be extremely uncomfortable in any drive over an hour. I think we had somebody else complaining about this recently as well. Um, yeah, he's, yeah. he's tried uh, all the different settings, lumbar adjustments, seat height, location, steering wheel, and seat, but nothing seems to help. I believe the main issue is a lack of proper lumbar support, not enough movement in the lumbar region, and the short lower cushion length. I have tried adding a lumbar support foam pillow, but it still bothers me. Is there anything I can do besides trying to get an aftermarket seat or finding another car? Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Uh, previous cars he's owned, uh, 92 Infiniti Q45. Ah, very nice. Um, 2003 Beetle TDI, um, 2003 Honda Pilot, and a 2007 TSX, which is his wife's car. So I think, you know, maybe the, the easiest thing, you know, the the easiest thing to do would be if you can find a seat from a GTI, which should that bolt right in there. Rec- yeah, that's exactly what um, I was going to say. Like, put GTI seats in it. Yeah, you know, the, the thing to do there would be, you know, uh, maybe go over to the VW dealer and actually try out the GTI seat and, you know, see if you like that any better. Um, and then if you do, you know, then start, you know, searching uh, the pick and pull lots, you know, scrapyards and see if you can find, you know, find a wrecked one and pull, pull the driver's seat out of it and put it and that Make should sure bolt they don't right have in. blood on them. Yeah. Well, there's that. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, you can, you can always put seat covers on. Like, right. That's true. Uh, LKQ um, is a, a big uh, recycler um, and you can just go to their site. I think it's like car-part.com. And you can look there for the seats and and find them, and you'll find them in various states of uh, quality. You know, some of them will be a little bit blemished, some of them will be fine, and they'll tell you how much they are, how many are close to you. Uh, so that that whole thing would be what I would suggest: is just go find something that'll bolt in, because it's not like that car is on a unique platform that's the cool thing about platform sharing is just how much stuff fits that's right um you know and then you know of course the other option is an aftermarket seat um 
you know, as far as the seat that's in there, you know, there's there's not a whole lot else you can do. I mean, you know, if you try to, you know, a lumbar support cushion, if that doesn't work for you, there's, you know, that's pretty much all you're going to be able to do really with with that seat that's there. Um, you know, but like I said, you know, replacing it with uh, with a used one, a used GTI seat is probably your best bet. Yeah, and you you know the other difficulty you're going to find is that aftermarket seats are very expensive to come near the quality of a uh, factory seat. That is true. So. Yeah, I mean you're you know for something like a Recaro, you're probably looking you know in the fifteen hundred dollar price range. Uh, certainly upwards of a thousand bucks for any kind of decent seat. Uh, whereas if you can find one uh, from a from a wrecked GTI, um, you know you can probably get that for a few hundred bucks. Yeah, and you know your your back comfort and longevity is you, know, you can decide what that's worth. Okay, that's fine, but not having you know a DVT or something is worth a couple grand to me. But uh, yeah, seats are one of those things, and and it's hard to really get a good feel for how it's going to be on a test drive, right? Because you're just doing what, maybe 10 or 15 miles on a test drive. So, uh, you know, that long-term hours in the saddle kind of thing is something that can only come out really after you own the car for a little while. And, and you, you know, hopefully it doesn't lead to too much buyer's remorse and you can get it solved. Yeah. On, on the other hand, um, you know, you know, since he already owns a Jetta, you know, he already knows, you know, where, where the problem areas are for him, you know, in terms of the way the seat fits him. And so, you know, if he goes and hops into a GTI for a test drive, he might be able to, he, you know, within a fairly short period of time, he, he might be able to get a better idea if that's going to fit him better than the, the base Jetta yeah, seat does. True. Yeah, yeah, that's true. All right. Uh, and finally, we have uh, from uh, Peter Saras. Um, he's uh, recently discovered the show and he's very much enjoying the insights. Is he um, talking about our show? <laughs> two topics that he. <laughs> well, presumably, I mean, you know, he, he, he did send it uh, through our website, so he send this yeah. message. <laughs> Uh, he says uh, two topics he doesn't recall being addressed very much appreciate if you could either address these in, in future podcasts or point me to sources that go into more depth on, and more in depth on those um, with all the efforts and discussions about autonomous mobility there's surprisingly little time spent on developing infrastructure such as roadside tags or even in surface where uh, in, sur in surface guide wires that would be much better uh, that would be much better suitable for machines rather than going through all this trouble of designing machines to understand human signs, lines on the road, etc. There would be absolutely significant cost, but it is, is it really cheaper to maintain painted lines and design all this crazy computing to follow that, never mind that uh, wouldn't work for half a year up here in Canada anyways. Related, uh, do you know why the efforts to keep design, the efforts to design vehicles communicating to each other seem to less and less be on the forefront of any uh, communicated progress about autonomous vehicles? Uh, so let I'll address that. There's actually two questions he's got here. I'll address that first. Um, so as far as relying on infrastructure, this is something that uh, we've tried in the past, you know, especially back in the 90s. There was a lot of work that went into what we called uh, at the time intelligent vehicle highway systems. Um, you know, there were experiments done, um, you know, with embedding tags uh, in the roadway. Uh, there was a, a big experiment that was done uh, down near San Diego um, with 
doing exactly this. Uh, you know, GM participated in it. They had a whole fleet of vehicles that were running, you know, autonomously following uh, tags that were embedded into the the roadway. Um, the problem with this, you know, as you mentioned, there's there is a significant cost associated with doing that and maintaining it, you know, and especially, um, you know, in cold weather states, you know, maintaining those kinds of things, anything that's going to go on the roadway, you know, when you've got frost heaves and you get the road moving around and you've got trucks driving over it, um, it becomes very difficult to maintain such a system. The other problem with it is a lack of flexibility. You know, one of the reasons why we've shifted away from doing that to trying to design vehicles that can drive anywhere is, you know, if the if the car has to follow a guide wire in the road, then you know, what happens if it has to switch lanes? What happen, you know, like what happens if somebody's double parked and you have to go around it? Um, you know, Going, you know, you you you're going to tend to inherently limit the routes that you can drive. Doing this, um, you know, there's there's actually in a lot of ways a lot more complexity in in doing this and and a lot less usability of a system that's based on that. So this is why you know they've gone to uh, systems where you know the vehicle it's everything's embedded in the vehicle and it's trying the vehicle is trying to understand its environment. You know, it has a map and knows where it's trying to go, um, and you know, just as as a human driver would do, you. Know, you know, looking around at whatever obstacles it has and, and trying to deal with those. And ultimately, that's probably going to be a better solution uh, or at least a, a more useful solution. Um, it, it may in some ways be less robust, but it's going to be more, more useful to people. Um, you know, and then the other part of that is vehicle-to-vehicle uh, -vehicle communications. Um, you know, this is something that a lot of manufacturers are still working on. Unfortunately, um, the, you know, there, there was in late 2016, um, there was a notice of proposed rulemaking to establish a, a mandate for vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications here in the U.S., um, but that um, fell by the wayside uh, with the transition to the new administration, uh, which is adamantly opposed to any and all regulations. Um, and so for the at least the duration of the, the current administration in Washington, it's unlikely that we'll see any progress from, from that perspective. But manufacturers are continuing to work on this. Uh, Toyota earlier this year announced their intention to deploy V2V um, across their entire vehicle lineup starting in 2021. Uh, GM has said they're going to do it in 22 or 23. Um, there's also a question now about which technology to use. All the development up until now has been using technology called DSRC, Dedicated Short Range Communications, which is based on Wi-Fi. Um, there's some companies uh, led by Qualcomm and, and Huawei in China that want to use cellular technologies instead. Um, and, you know, we could, I could go on for several hours about this, <laughs> but I won't. Um, but needless to say, it, it is, it's not dead. Um, it's not the top priority at the moment. Um, they're more focused on automation, but I think that uh, communications is, is actually going to be a crucial component of making automated systems re more reliable and robust. Well, one other thing about, about this question, you, know, you mentioned, uh, you know, living in Canada, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the, relying on uh, lane markings and so on uh, wouldn't be viable in the wintertime. Actually, this is, this is one of the things that, you know, the companies doing this stuff have been working on is, um, you know, because 
you know, there's going to be a lot of situations where you've got roads, you know, especially residential roads that don't have lane markings, um, you know, or if they're covered with snow or, or you know, water or whatever it might be, um, where you can't really see the roadway. Um, they're, what they're doing is they're, uh, they're using a combination with high-definition maps that have all the, the features around the roadway uh, plotted on the map. And so, uh, you know, things like uh, light poles, utility poles, buildings are all on the map. And so as the vehicle drives down the road, the sensors are looking and it's doing, um, creating, creating its own map at, you know, as it drives down the road uh, based on what the sensors see, comparing that to the stored map and using that to localize the vehicle. And doing that, they can actually get... Um, much better location accuracy of the vehicle um, that, you know, down to a couple of centimeters accuracy. So down to, you know, about an inch or less of location accuracy, even when the vehicle can't see the roadway. Um, last year, uh, Ford was doing some testing uh, in Michigan during the wintertime uh, in the snow. You know, they had at the M-City test facility in uh, Ann Arbor, um, you know, they had done an HD map of the entire facility um, before the snow fell and then once once it was snowing they were able to easily drive around you know and localize the vehicle much better than you can do with GPS you know GPS you're you know at best about uh, about a meter of accuracy as far as the localization but with uh, you know doing it based on the HD maps you can get down to down to under an inch of precision uh, for localization so that's that you know those using the sensors is a, a better more reliable approach than you know using road tags um, and then uh, the second the other question he had was uh, understanding the pros and cons of plug-in hybrids one point I haven't heard talked about uh, is the stability of fuel in a plug-in hybrid scenario it's expected that the majority of travel is done in short commutes in purely electric mode and the ICE system is only used occasionally for longer trips um, so they again here this is something that the engineers they have thought of, of uh, and you know <laughs> that, well they try they try they they miss stuff. I mean, you always miss stuff. You can never anticipate every scenario. But this is a scenario that they did anticipate and they did figure out. Uh, when the original Chevy Volt launched back in 2010, um, you know, they, they developed um, what they called a maintenance mode. Um, so, you know, on the Volt, and they've, they've done similar things on other plug-in hybrids. Uh, you know, on that Volt, they had a sealed fuel tank uh, so that uh, there was less oxygen getting in and out of there, you know, and oxygenating the fuel and, and causing it to start decomposing so that it helps stabilize the fuel. And then the other thing that they, they would do is, uh, you know, typically on a plug-in hybrid, you have a smaller fuel tank, um, you know, typically, you know, 9 to 10 gallons at most um, so that there's, there's not as much fuel in there. And what it'll do is... Um, over time, it will period the system will periodically run the engine, even if you are you know charging the car all the time and using it in electric mode all the time. It will periodically run the engine, you know, in part to circulate the fluids in the engine, the coolant and the oil and everything else, but also to consume that fuel. And I know on, in the case of the Volt, the original Volt. Um, you know, it had a, about a nine and a half gallon fuel tank, and over the course of twelve months, if you did not put any 
additional fuel into the tank, it would consume the entire contents of that tank over the course of a 12-month period. If you added more fuel as you were going along and mixing in fresh fuel, you know, then it would stretch out that, that time period. Um, but, you know, it's still periodically use, you know, running the engine for a few minutes at a time here and there uh, to use up a bit of the fuel. And so that's, that's how they address that problem. Well, all right. To me, the, the idea of um, uh, a car that follows the stuff in the roads and then, like, the idea, you know, having it be able to deal with those situations like you were talking about where something's double parked and, you know, the, the answer is not, well, we'll just make it so that other cars can't double park in that spot because basically what you've done is you've created trains. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, and that's that's fine. We, we need uh, high-tech trains, too. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that the there's so much emphasis on making cars autonomous because it's a it's a novel solution that um can solve a lot of a lot of issues that you know have been unsolvable to this point so um it's gotten traction and i think it's going to come continue to be refined uh where trains are kind of a known quantity and they're very expensive to do and uh you can get a lot of that benefit out of uh, out know, of, a, of an actual train. Yeah, or, or actual trains, yes. Yes. That's, that's and actually, uh, <laughs> you know, real real trains actually do it better because you you actually have more people in there, um, you know, potential to carry more people in, in, in fewer vehicles and more, in less space. Uh, and it's actually a more efficient solution uh, for high-density routes. Uh, and you know this is this is one of the things with mobility, uh, the mobility surface services, is that um, you know we actually need multimodal transportation ecosystems. It's, it can't just be autonomous vehicles. It has to be a mix of you know scooters and bikes and buses and AVs and and trains and subways, um, you know, to and utilizing the right mode for every trip. You know, to in order to actually start making any progress on problems like congestion. Yeah, what's with the obsession to have you know one single solution? I don't get it. What's the matter with multiple solutions? There's nothing wrong with multiple solutions, and you know, I mean, that's <laughs> and and I I don't th that you know that obsession is not universal. You know, I think that there's there's a lot of people who. Um, and, you know, and Ford is a good example of this is why, you know, and other manufacturers too, you know, this is why they're investing in, in things like bike sharing services and, you know, why Ford bought Spin, a, a scooter rental company and, you know, why they have chair, why they bought Chariot, um, you know, which is a, a micro, tra micro transit service, you know, a van ride service, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to do this end to end ecosystem, you know, to, to get the right mode for every trip. And as I said, they are you know they are not unique in this. You know, VW is doing this. GM is 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 doing this to varying degrees. Toyota and other manufacturers, and and even you know even Google and Waymo. Yeah. So keep writing in. You know, let yes. us know how we did with your car picks. Let us know uh, if you have any follow up questions. Uh, I think we have we have knocked down a podcast. 
Um, so join us next week. And in the meantime, find us on uh, social media or email and uh, let us know how we're doing. And, uh, you know, if you feel like uh, giving us a rating in iTunes or somewhere else, you know, please uh, do that too and let your friends know and, and share the show. And, uh, you know, to, to anybody that uh, that I have encountered in my various travels uh, that uh, that we've talked about, that, you know, that, that uh, has listened to the show, thanks. And I uh, uh, hope you keep listening. Bye. All right. With that, have a good night. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.